Chevy Equinox with forward collision alert, automatic emergency braking, and available all-wheel drive. It's my ultimate mobile device. Go to ChevyDriveChicago.com to schedule a test drive. Chevy Equinox. It's your choice. Own it. Hi, I'm Paul Listick, and welcome to Behind the Curtain. Each of us has to put our principles and consciences on the line, whether in social settings or in the workplace, to set forth solid standards and stick to them. There's no moral middle ground. Indifference is not an option. We want you to help us create an outspoken intolerance for drug use. For the sake of our children, I implore each of you to be unyielding and inflexible in your opposition to drugs. Our young people are helping us lead the way. Not long ago in Oakland, California, I was asked by a group of children what to do if they were offered drugs. And I answered, just say no. Soon after that, those children in Oakland formed a Just Say No club. And now, there are over 10,000 such clubs all over the country. Those, the voice, the words of former First Lady Nancy Reagan, and perhaps with a message that so many people remember her primarily for. The question is, is that the fair thing to remember her for? Joining me now is the author of a new book, The Triumph of Nancy Reagan, written by Karen Tumulty, uh, not only a political columnist for the Washington Post, but the Washington Post deputy editorial page editor. She used to write for Time magazine, and now she's our guest for this show. I should say welcome to Behind the Curtain, everybody. This is Paul Lisnick from WGN-TV. Karen, thanks for joining me. Good to talk to you. Oh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. So you, of course, joined me on, on the, my TV show, Political Report. Now we get to talk on this podcast for more extended discussion. First of all, um, and I did not tell you I was going to open with that quote from Nancy Reagan. Yeah. So let me just start by getting your reaction to it. Is that the fair thing people should remember her for? Well, it is certainly the uh, the cause that, that people remember her most for. Um, and but I, I think that the other thing about that soundbite is it, it really gives you a better sense of what the Just Say No program really was. It was aimed at young kids. Um, and it was basically, a, you know, this this idea that, that social pressure, peer pressure, including peer pressure, would be the, the best sort of thing to uh, deter them from using drugs. And, um, you know, people, people these days sort of like to just dismiss it as a, you know, empty sloganeering. But in fact, as I was researching the book, um, I took a look at some of the long, long-term, you know, the longitudinal studies of young kids' attitudes towards drugs. And in fact, you do see a very, very sharp shift from the late 1970s and then going into the 80s, where, uh, you know, when, when kids were asked would they, would they think less of a, a a friend who used drugs, what they think about using drugs themselves, there really was a sharp turn in young people's attitudes. And then what you see is in the 90s, it, it kind of turns back the other way. But what it, um, you know, one of the reasons that it was criticized is that it was not necessarily in alignment with um, Reagan administration policies on drugs, which were to really treat drug use as a you know, a criminal problem, not a health problem. And, you know, so the, all of this was happening at the same time. 
uh, that the Reagan administration was incarcerating a lot of people, and particularly men of color, uh, when they were cutting back on some of the social programs that dealt with drug use and drug treatment. So, well, I think in her narrow mission, which was aimed at elementary school children, it was, in fact, perhaps more successful than people these days give it credit for being. And there's so much more to Nancy Reagan. You know, Nancy was known for saying, just say no. But when Simon & Schuster asked you to write this bi- autobiography, or this biography, you said yes. And, um, and I'm sort of curious, w- when you were asked to do it, was it a, oh, here's a, I have time to write a book, uh, so I'll go ahead and do that. W- or was there something about Nancy Reagan that you said, yeah, this needs to be explored today? Well, I... You know, I um, I had never written a book before, so yes, there was that challenge. But I also did have the sense that she was an incredi- incredibly complex person and would be sort of interesting to explore. What I did not expect to find and what I did was really how influential she was on both uh, the rise of one of the most significant figures of the 20th century, but also in the success of the Reagan presidency. And um, Ronald Reagan, as as gifted as he was at connecting with the country, was also somebody who was sort of allergic to uh, confrontation, who tended to trust the people around him. And it was really his wife who was very wary by nature who, um, if she decided someone was not serving Ronald Reagan's interests, if they were pursuing their agenda, not his, uh, she would have a very, you know, she was very aggressive in her alliances and in, in you know, getting rid of people when she thought they needed to go. And I want to get more into that that part of her personality as well. But first, I have to ask you. I just I read Ron Reagan Jr.'s book, uh, My Dad at a Hundred, and one of the things he says is that that his father, Ronald Reagan, ninety percent of of who his dad was, we all saw basically was out there in the public. He said, but there was ten percent of his dad that was hidden, was impenetrable, not even to Nancy. I'm sort of curious in all your work on Nancy, which also put you in the world of Ronald Reagan as well. Did you do you think you found that ten percent we never saw? Do you have a sense of what that ten percent was that we just never got to see? Well, the fact is that um, you know Ronald Reagan was close to exactly one person in the world, and that he married her. Um, but even Nancy Reagan would write that you know there are parts of my husband that not even I can reach. So he was in many ways a, a detached and remote figure certainly even to his children. And he was closer to Nancy Reagan than anyone else. But, you know, she too said there are just some parts of him that I can't even get through to. You wrote in the book that she was a powerful force in the White House. I think everybody knows that, an important ally to have. But outside, you write, she was seen as icy and vain and brimming with entitlement those are pretty diametrically opposed kind of views, I think. So when after this project is over, the book is out, I guess I want to ask you the general question, who was Nancy Reagan? Was she all of that? You know, I, yes, she was all of those things. She was a lot of contradictions. Um, she was someone whose judgment about people, I think everyone I talked to, and I, I talked to George Schultz, the Secretary of State, I talked to James Baker, 
who was White House Chief of Staff, who in fact was White House Chief of Staff because Nancy Reagan wanted him to be White House Chief of Staff. And all of them said pretty much the same thing, which was that her judgment about people and the people around her husband was really better than his even. Um, And that is really where she exercised her influence. As James Baker told me, he said, you know, if you could convince her that something was really in the president's best interest, you had a, ran a pretty good chance of, of getting Reagan on board, too. You you write that nobody, and you just said, nobody was really closer to Reagan than Nancy, to Ronald Reagan than Nancy, and that makes a lot of sense. But, you know, when we think of a president, uh, we think of a president who's surrounded by the cabinet and, and, and formal advisors and appointed people and Senate-confirmed people and, and all of that. Um, do you get a sense, you've been covering Washington for a long time, I mean, did, was Nancy Reagan's influence over Ronald Reagan or on Ronald Reagan, would you say it's as powerful, more or less, than Hillary Clinton on Bill or, or, you know, or Michelle Obama on Barack. I mean, where, who, how, where does she rank in the terms of, or, or maybe I should say Eleanor Roosevelt on FDR. Where does she rank in the realm of influence? It, 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 she was incredibly influential, but it's very different from the kinds of influence that we have seen in other first ladies. Um, you, you know, Eleanor Roosevelt was really the eyes and ears and the legs of her husband. She was in some ways his social conscience, his hair shirt in, in many respects. Hillary Clinton was took over an entire policy area. You know, she became the president's, uh, you know, she became the head of the, the most uh, unsuccessful, but the, the most ambitious domestic policy initiative of the Clinton years, which was trying to uh, you know, rewrite the healthcare system. Nancy Reagan's influence was very, very different. She um, rarely set foot in the West Wing, but if she was unhappy about something, uh, everybody who worked there knew it. And if somebody was not in her good graces, they tended not to last for very long. Um, She essentially saw her role as watching the president's back. And... As you said, she kind of creates a mold for, for other first ladies, first ladies doing their own thing. And I think of Michelle Obama, you know, very influential, but she kind of takes that more traditional role in terms of better eating, that sort of thing. As you read about all Nancy did, how was she viewed? It's been so many years for, to, to, to think back on this. How was she viewed by the public in general? Well, like he left office with a over 60 percent approval rating. What do people think about her? Well, ultimately, she was very popular, but at the beginning was, uh, you know, she she had a pretty tough uh, first year in particular. Uh, Number one, she, you know, her husband was almost killed by a would-be assassin. So that sort of, uh, and I have an entire chapter on how that experience really scarred her. But, you know, the country at that point was in the worst recession since the Great Depression. And she uh, brought some real political problems on herself when she undertook to redecorate the White House, which is something Jackie Kennedy had done to great acclaim. But uh, you know, she had done it during Camelot, not during a, a recession. Uh, she bought Nancy Reagan bought two hundred thousand dollars with with private donations of, of White House china. Again, this was something that did not go over well with the public at a time when people were trying to keep food on their own plates. Um, but ultimately, she really did become, I think, a lot 
shrewder, a lot more sophisticated, um, and, and, you know, much better at, at kind of managing her own image. But more importantly, I think, was the role that she played at various points in his administration. She was one of the most powerful forces in the White House. And I would really recommend people look at the first chapter of my book, um, where George Schultz talks about how important she was in pushing Ronald Reagan to uh, reach out to the Soviet Union. And really, this is something that a lot of people in his administration were very skeptical of. You know, these were hawks. These were people who thought the, you know, Soviet, there could never be any such thing as a working relationship with the Soviet Union. She was a very important force and a very key ally for people like George Shultz. And then um, another point at which her role became very, very important was during the second term when Ronald Reagan hits the worst scandal, the worst crisis of his presidency, which is the Iran-Contra scandal. And, you know, this was a something that involved, you know, trading weapons to the Iranian exchange for U.S. hostages and some obvious violations of U.S. law and diverting the funds to the Contras, the rebels in Nicaragua. Um, at this time, impeachment, people forget, impeachment was a real possibility. And there were people who were in danger of going to prison. And what you see if you take a look at what was going on in that White House, Nancy Reagan essentially was practically the only person there who remained sort of clear-eyed enough about the danger to, to mount the rescue effort. And, you know, if, as I did my research and talked to some of the people who were around, um, that involved doing things like uh, pushing her very stubborn husband to eventually fire his White House chief of staff. And ultimately, I think just as importantly, maybe more importantly, stand up and acknowledge to the country that he had made some terrible mistakes in, yeah. in doing this. Um, th- these were things that Ronald Reagan was not inclined to do, and sh- it took her months of maneuvering behind the scenes to get him in the position where he was willing to do that. What I love about a podcast is I can now follow up on a couple of things you just said that television just does not allow me the time to do. <laughs> so you talked about the uh, your chapter one of the book, and it, one of the questions I never got to ask you on TV was, you know, why you started the book in February of 1983 with that George Schultz invitation to dinner, Secretary of State invitation to dinner, talking about her ulterior motive. And 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 it's interesting because I was going to ask you why open there, but as you talk almost about Iran-Contra, Iran I see why, because it, that really tells us a lot about who Nancy Reagan was, and it just feeds forward into all the other events she had her influence in. Yeah, it's, it was a really sort of interesting episode. It's February of 1983. George Schultz is kind of new in the job. He doesn't really know the Reagans all that well. And Washington gets sucked in by a blizzard. So as as it's one of the worst blizzards of the century, but as the city is digging out, out of nowhere, George Schultz on a Saturday afternoon gets a call from Nancy Reagan saying, why don't you and your wife come over to dinner tonight and it'll just be the four of us. And so Schultz had described how what started out as a social evening turns into both of the Reagans sort of peppering Schultz with questions about his recent trip to China and what, what were the leaders there like. And then he and then Reagan starts 
talking about the Soviet Union. And that is the point Schultz told me, that he first realized that this man had never had a conversation with a big-time Soviet leader, and that he was really eager to do that, and that he had really a lot of confidence in his own abilities as a negotiator. But it is also at that point that George Schultz realizes that was the whole point of this dinner, that, that Nancy really wanted to get him away from the National Security Council, away from the Pentagon, so that he could hear some of Ronald Reagan's ideas for himself unfiltered. And the other thing Schultz told me was that um, he also began to realize that evening that he had found a very, very important ally in a first lady who understood her husband as nobody else did. You wrote in the book that it's actually a quote from her where she says, I wasn't tough. I was strong. What's the difference? You know, it's, that's another one of the sort of great contradictions I found in Nancy Reagan. She really sort of styled herself as a kind of pre-feminist traditional spouse. And yet, at the same time, I have rarely seen somebody who was just so confident of her own power. And so I think that, um, you know, I think the toughness is something that I think she was quite tough. And I think that, um, but I think this was not sort of in her own self-image. And she said, the second half of that quote is, I was strong because I had to be, because I could see some things that sometimes my husband could not see and someone had to deal with them. So I, uh, I think she was both, but I, I do think that, the idea of her being tough really does kind of go against, you know, her own self-image. I mean, and again, she she would have rejected the idea that she was some kind of feminist. And yet, like I said, she knew her power and she was very comfortable with it. And related to that, you write at one point in the book, he was Teflon. He was so well known for being the <laughs> Teflon, right? Nothing seemed to stick with him. He was Teflon, but you wrote, she was Velcro. I just, I loved that <laughs> distinction. <laughs> It's true. It's true. She she made, you know, she made a lot of mistakes and the damage from them did tend to adhere to her. And that's the other thing that was sort of confounding was, you know, how somebody who was so shrewd about her husband's image could have been sometimes so clueless about her own. I want to follow up on one other thing that you mentioned, and, and I have to bring in another book to say this, but I think you'll be okay with this, because I interviewed your colleague and friend, Carol Lennick, on her book, Zero Fail, uh, about the Secret Service. And just as you have a chapter on the assassination attempt on Ronald Reagan, so does she. And um, I, I'm sort of amazed at really the overlap be- between there. I mean, you're fa- you don't really differentiate in, on the facts and the, the, the moments, that, and now I don't know whose book I, I have in my head, but you know, mm-hmm. the moments where they, the Secret Service didn't want Nancy Reagan to know about it, and she basically, when she did find out, basically said, I'm going to the hospital, drive me, or I'm walking over there. I'm sort of curious, assuming you read Carol's book, what, um, when you read that, did you say, yeah, that's the, na- that's the Nancy Reagan I've been studying? Did Carol get it right? That's the Nancy I've been studying? Well, that actually is in my book, too. It's, um, it, she was actually told about the assassination attempt by the head of her own Secret Service detail, who was a guy named George Opfer. She was back at the White House. And um, but he said, don't worry, the president wasn't hit. He's fine. And he's just at the hospital. And she went, wait a minute, if, if he's fine, what's he doing at the hospital? And, and Opfer said, well, you know, he'll be home in a few minutes. Don't worry about it. 
And that's when she says, I'm going to the hospital, and if if you can't get me a car, I'm going to walk. And then she gets to the hospital, and that is where she was. And, in fact, the president was hit. And also that she learns that, you know, this was much, he was much closer to death than the, you know, than the White House let the country know at the time. But she's demanding to see him, and they don't want to let her in because he's in such terrible shape. And she at one point tells them, no, I have to, he has to see me. You don't know how things are with us. And again, this is, uh, it is a, an experience that really does shape and I think shadow the rest of her years in the White House because she was always just terrified that every time her husband left the White House, there was someone else out there waiting for him. And that, you know, also leads her into what becomes probably the biggest embarrassment of her time in the White House, which is when it is discovered she's been relying on an astrologer to uh, help set Ronald Reagan's schedule. That's exactly where I was going next. Exactly that. Of course, we read about that in the book. But this whole notion of astrology, I mean, that just didn't play well with the public. There are people who believe in it and people who don't. But um, is it unfortunate that that ever came out? Or if Nancy Reagan were on the phone with us now, would she say, hey, I, I, I still believe in it and it works? Well, you know what? It was wacky. I mean, there's just no, there's no <laughs> way around it. And also, there's, there's a little, um, you know, that... The idea that because you're afraid of his, you know, his, his, you know, you're afraid of his security, that you would rely on some woman in California who you've only met a couple of times in person to give her control. You know, not over policy, but in some often the comings and goings of the president, what days he would be out of the White House. And it was just, you know, such a contradiction because what could be left? Uh, secure than giving some outsider like this a chance to say when and where the president will be going somewhere. So it didn't make sense, uh, but it was something that that she really needed. It was a, it was an emotional crutch for her. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, astrology, by the way, is something that was very very popular in Hollywood in the forties and the fifties as the Reagans were you know, living there. So it probably was something that wouldn't have sounded quite so wacky to, you know, Hollywood people. But again, it was, it was a big, big mistake. Uh, She knows a Gemini. She might only let one of me in. Uh, (laughs) You know, to me, here's my view of history. If there's a a tremendous stain on the Reagan presidency and that incorporates her, it's on the handling of the AIDS crisis. I mean, it was not addressed quickly or effectively. Uh, One of Nancy's good friends, Rock Hudson, died of the disease. She had to get it. Even he, I'm sure, on some level get it. But I know he's being advised by his advisors, one of whom said we should be tattooing HIV positive people. So people, I mean, just horrendous thinking back then. Was that a case where political pressure and political reality simply won over what maybe both of them were inside? What did they really think of the AIDS crisis? Did they know they screwed it up? Well, I have a whole chapter in the book on the AIDS crisis. And I think the um, the real problem within the Reagan administration was that 
you know, too many of his advisors, especially the social conservatives, saw AIDS as a moral crisis, not a health crisis. Um, Nancy, who was the daughter of a neurosurgeon, certainly, you know, she wasn't there soon enough. She wasn't there aggressively enough, but she saw what was going on earlier than her husband did. And uh, her son, Ron, told me that for quite a while, she and Ron would take the president aside and sort of try to explain to him what was going on. And ultimately, when Reagan decides to give his first speech on the AIDS crisis, which, by the way, he's already into his second term by then. Tens of thousands of people have already died of the disease by then. But Nancy Reagan was so worried about what the White House speechwriters would do with this speech that she actually brought in her own speechwriter to handle it. And I came across in my research sort of what the president's men wanted the speech to say versus what ultimately got into it. Um, And she really did. um, You know, I I think she she moved him on the issue, but nobody can say that, you know, it was belatedly, it wasn't aggressively enough. And you're right, this will forever remain a deep, deep scar on Ronald Reagan's legacy. Yeah, who knows where things would have been if they had reacted differently. It's sort of like you could look at the Trump years and, the, and COVID, right? I mean, if a president acts differently, where did things go? Clearly, the Reagans will always be remembered. I think when people, if it's a trivia question on TV, who is name the greatest love affairs between a president and a first lady? I mean, Nancy and Ronald are right. If they're not number one, man, they're really close to it. But what I love about your book, Karen, is the fact that it's also very clear they're a regular married couple. I mean, when it came to, I, I think it was the Iran-Contra moment where didn't he just look at her at one point and said, shut the hell up. He said, get, yeah, he said, yeah, get off my damn back um, when she's trying to get him to fire the, his White House chief of staff. And um, they were a real married couple. They would have arguments and they would have arguments in front of other people. For instance, in as I mentioned, she very eager to see him pushed to a warming of relations with the Soviet Union. So when Reagan refers to Moscow as the evil empire, she hated it. And she would, they would, they would go round and round over that, that, that phrase as she would be sort of be trying to get him to tone down his rhetoric. Um, but that, again, they were a genuine married couple there. And, you know, their marriage had its stresses as does everyone's marriage. Yeah. So, I, it, you know, but I think, was very, very real. And certainly at the end of his life, the last decade, as he descends into Alzheimer's, which sort of takes him on a journey where she cannot follow. I mean, I don't think anyone could have doubted her devotion to him. Yeah, no question about it. And, and, um, of course, also the relationship between a mother and her kids. And you write about the fact that her relationship with Maureen and Michael, who was adopted, was not a great relationship. And my memory is, is it Michael that didn't even cooperate with you on this book? That's right. Um, Michael and Patty didn't, they did write their own books. So, and and they were very uh, memoirs. I was material from their own books to give them voice. I I talked to Nancy's Reagan, Nancy's brother. I talked to their son, Ron, um, and Maureen uh, died in 2001 of cancer, but I spent a lot of time with the, uh, her widower. So I, I do think I got a, um, you know, a good picture of a family that was pretty dysfunctional. 
And as Nancy Reagan herself would write about her relationship with not just the, you know, with her own two biological children and also the two children from Ronald Reagan's first marriage, she herself would write, um, you know, I never wanted anything but to be a good wife and a good mother. And I guess I succeeded more at one than the other. And I think there's two, you know, when Ron, when Ron Jr., again, having just read his book, uh, he did a, a, an interview about it, and, and he talked about the fact that, you know, Michael Reagan hated it and wouldn't talk to him and, you know, went after him and attacked him. And when he called his mother when the book was first coming out, uh, her answer was, you tell people I read it, I loved it, and I'm proud of you. She loved her kids. And she, Ron, I think, was sort of, to the degree there was a favorite, it, it was Ron. Um and but there were all kinds of stresses in in the family, and but um, in part because Ronald and Nancy Reagan were so close that, as Patty would say at her mother's funeral, that they they sort of floated around on the outside. So now that the book is over. And I read all 578 pages of it. So rich <laughs> with, you, with thank you. Well, yeah, rich with detail. Well, I'm, I, I love history, and, and you know, even if you don't love it, listen. I, I, let's be honest. Even if you're not a fan of Ronald Reagan, I don't mean you, people. If you're not a fan of Ronald Reagan. It's important to understand these people who had such influence in the history and direction of our country. So I'm curious now that this is behind you, and let's move ahead 10, 20 years. How does history look back on Nancy Reagan and her influence and her influence on the direction of the country? Is it a, is it a positive one or not? You know, I think that, and what I hope the book has done is that, you know, as as complicated a person as she was, um, I do think that people should understand and, and appreciate the degree to which she really was responsible for both her husband's political rise and I think some of the more successful uh, aspects of the Reagan presidency, and ultimately, again, as he, in the final years of his life, is uh, you know debilitated by Alzheimer's, she really the job of shaping his legacy and protecting his legacy really does land. And Karen, if you, listen with with this behind you. You said it's your first book. Do we get another one? Are you are you ready to take on your next subject, or or is it like I'm, I'm good for a while? I don't know. Have you got any ideas? Um, I can't. Yeah, yeah, no one's written a biography of me. I'm available. Well, I really think that what I would want is another person who is complex and who perhaps is, uh, I think, due for reassessment. So, if you've got any ideas, let me know. I sure will. And finally, did you go into this when you were asked to write it? Did you yourself have a positive or negative view of Nancy Reagan? Or do you as a journalist go in and just go, hey, I'm an open book and let's see what I find? I really, um, you know, I, I only had my impressions of her, but I really absolutely was determined that I was going to let the facts lead me where they would in this book. And I really was fortunate because I came across a lot of material that, had never been seen before. And really, there were a number of people, too, who were around, who were part of it, and who I think really opened up to me in a way that perhaps they might not have had not so many years at this point gone by. 
Well, I congratulate you. This I've, I've long admired and respected your work uh, with the Washington Post, and uh, and I thank you. The book is The Triumph of Nancy Reagan. Definitely worth the read. Check it out if you haven't. Now, summer may be behind us, but it's a good fall read if you haven't checked it out. Karen Dumblety, the Washington Post deputy editorial page editor. Man, your titles just keep growing. Uh, and a columnist <laughs> with the Washington Post. Congratulations. Thank you for your time. And I do look forward to your next book, uh, whoever it's about. And who knows? I might just send you a note <laughs> telling you who I think you should think yeah. about. That sounds great. Thank you so much for, for your Thank interest. Thank you so much, Karen. I appreciate you. Thank you. Well, if you want to know more about what we've talked about here, follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at Paul Lisnick. That's P-A-U-L-L-I-S-N-E-K. And I'd love to hear your comments or topic suggestions for future podcasts. You can also go to my website, paullisnick.tv. And hey, don't forget to hit subscribe on WGN Plus and iTunes. And tune in each week to hear more Insider Scoop coming to you from behind the curtain.